coming to you from Jonesboro, Tennessee, the storytelling capital of the world, and broadcasting from this beautiful historic McKinney Center. It is Storytown, Jonesboro's original storytelling radio show. I'm Jules Courier. I'll be your host tonight. And come on out, Katie. Katie uh, Rosalowski is going to be my co-host. And we are going to take a look at creatures great and small. Now, we love our animals in here in East Tennessee, and we have got stories from people who live and work among them, from Virginia Kennedy and her butterflies to Cody Storm at the Humane Society, and, of course, stories of our favorite furry, cuddly pets. Jewels. Not all of the pets we'll hear about are furry and cuddly. I know. I know. We've got Linda Poland here with a great story about a snake. Yes, I know. And we've also got drum roll, please, Brett. I don't have a drum tonight, but how about this? Yes, yes, all right. We have Connie the Snake Lady here with us tonight. That's right. Tonight is the night. Thanks to all of you who contributed during our fun drive. Tonight is the night when Jules gets face-to-face with Connie and her charming and handsome snakes. Yes, but, but that's coming up a little bit later in the show. But we do seriously want to thank the sponsors that have allowed this show to happen. We'd like to thank the Tennessee Arts Commission for their generous support. And the Wild Women of Jonesboro for sponsoring this season. We also want to thank Gary and Sandy Degner for their sponsorship. And to Heather McCluskey who is the sponsor for this month's episode of Creatures Great and Small. And we want to thank the makers of Parsley. Yes, Parsley, that smooth, easygoing flavor that enhances every meal. Sprinkle it on or garnish a dish. It It just just tastes tastes better better with parsley. Now, Katie, over the past year, we have had the chance to hear stories about cats and dogs and birds and llamas and goats, and we love our animals here. I have two neighbors that I get fresh eggs from. Chicken Wendy lives just behind me. And hi, Wendy, if you're watching. I hope you are. And her chicken, Goldie, she likes to fly over every once in a while into my yard, and I'll see her pecking around when I come home at lunchtime. I'll just scoop her up and put her over the fence, back over the fence again. Well, we have free-range chickens, goats, alpacas, dogs, cats. We are the dog town. We really are a canine town, Jonathan. Any given Saturday you'll see as many dogs as people. That's right. And to serve those needs, we have a shop right on Main Street. You're talking about Tennessee Tales. I am. I'm talking about Tennessee Tales. Well, Gabe Eveland of Tennessee Tales told Storytown how his shop came to be. I turned around and looked outside, and I saw a couple of dogs walking down the street, and I said, you know what? Downtown Jonesboro needs a pet store, because it's such a pet-friendly community, and... There's great walking areas, and so many people bringing their dogs down to downtown Jonesboro. We set up a pet supply store. It's really a no-brainer. We can have a fun little twist on it and make it more of a boutique. So, there's some items for humans and for pet parents as well. That's how the idea was born. We positively love our dogs. Up next is a family who's crazy about their rescue dog. Now, we've heard some of the adventures of Finn the dog before, but tonight, we're going to hear how Finn came to be in their family. Bringing a dog into a family is always a difficult decision. Which breed? How old? How much will it eat? 
How much exercise will it need? But when the family includes a member with special needs, the list becomes more extensive. How sturdy is it? How patient? Our first dog had fallen into our laps, a gift from God. But at 18 years old, his cancer returned. There's nothing more we can do other than keep him comfortable. With his age, I, I can't estimate how long he's got, but probably time to start looking for a new family member. So, we spoiled and pampered Lucky, and my son and I began our visits to the Washington County Animal Shelter in Johnson City. Big dogs, small dogs, old dogs, and puppies. I wanted to take them all home. We were looking for that one special dog that would fit into our family, every part of our family. But each time we went... Each week, sometimes twice. And each time I fell in love with at least one dog. They became dogs we visited each week. Dogs we were in love with but wouldn't work for our family. Too hyper or too loud. Or not good with other dogs or young children. But they were great dogs. So each visit, we would stop by their kennel to remind them what good dogs they were and to get some cuddles in. The staff was amazing as well. You would think week after week, which turned into month after month, they would tire of us, but they never did. Every dog we asked to visit with in the playroom, every dog we walked with extra questions, every inquiry about a dog we'd seen online, which I checked daily, they were always very helpful. Even the volunteers knew us by sight. And when we finally found him, I was ready to take any dog home. Our standards were too high. We'd been searching too long. There were so many good dogs just waiting for homes. But our family had specific needs. Then I saw the most beautiful dog, an Aussie Shepherd. That meant a good temperament, and a sturdy, intelligent dog. So, we piled into the car the next day and strolled through the bars. But he wasn't there. He's at the vet's. He should be back in a few hours. But we didn't have a few hours. My daughter would be out of school by then. So we visited with our regular dogs and left. And that was on Tuesday. Wednesday, the shelter is closed. So Thursday, when they unlocked the door, we were there. Up and down each aisle we roamed, but we didn't see him. Hey, Mom, did you see this one? There was a silent stretch of fur watching us walk by. He wasn't an Aussie, but he was adorable. Hey there, hey, buddy. <laughs> He's listening to you. Look at his ears. You want to go outside and see him? Mm-hmm. Hey there, you're a good boy. You want some company? Look, he's sitting up. Well, at least he's not a jumper. That's good. <laughs> you are a good boy, aren't you? Let him sniff you first. He's so cuddly. He is so calm. Let's take him out for a walk. You're a good boy. You want to go for a walk, huh? You want to go for a walk? He pulls a bit, but it's not bad on a leash. Well, he just wants to play with all the other dogs. Here, let me get a picture of him. Oh, <laughs> He's trying to kiss your phone. <laughs> I think he might be the one. I think he is. Hey, 
Chris, can we use the large playroom again? I think we'd like to have this one temper tested. Sure, come on. You know, he just came in yesterday. He's not even online yet. Joseph, make sure you let her do the testing. She works here. Only interfere if the dog comes to you. So, Joseph, this is what we do to temper test. Your mom already told me what your family needs since your sister has special needs. Well, I'm playing with this guy. I'm roughhousing with him. I'm going to love on him and pet him a little harder than normal. And then I'm going to play with his feet and give them little tugs. See how he's playing and not snapping? Uh Uh-huh. Fur. That's because he's a good boy. Yes, he is. And when I tug his tail, he just wants to play more. Yes, you do. You know this is my job. You never pull a dog's tail. Oh, no, of course. He seems to like you rubbing his ears, though. He does, and he's not even reacting to the fact that I'm actually tugging on them ever so often. All in all, I think this dog has great temperament. He'll be great around your young kids, which means he'll be fine for your sister. Great. Now... Whoa, whoa, what are you doing, boy? What are you... (laughs) He just sat in your lap after all that pestering. (laughs) I think we just found ourselves a dog. Even if he doesn't realize he's too big to be a lap dog. Our policy is that the pet does have to meet every member of the household before we can approve an adoption. I know, but my daughter can't come up here. There are too many dogs and too many smells. I tell you what, if you let me know when you can bring her up here, I'll meet you out front at your car with him. You can do that? Well, we aren't supposed to, but in this case, absolutely. So that afternoon, we returned. Chris brought the dog out, but she didn't need to bring him all the way to the handicap parking. Savannah saw Joseph run over to him, and she got out the car. I walked with her. Again, the big dog made himself comfortable on Chris's lap, waiting for Savannah to pet him. Chris was just as kind and respectful to Savannah as she had been for months with us. Savannah didn't pet the dog that day. She only smiled at him. But when I asked her what she thought about him coming home with us, she began to laugh. And I knew, after three and a half months of searching and praying, we had finally found our new family member. And I finally have my family. Finally, a family perfect for me. What I didn't know was that our family had a fin-shaped hole in it. And when I saw how Finn completed our family, I realized God had known. Finn does more than love and play and cuddle. Instinctively, he knows when my daughter needs extra attention. He calms her or interrupts negative behaviors. He's more than the standard we had set. I'm more than a pet. I'm part of the family. (laughs) One day, Joseph asked me, Hey, Mom, how did we get a dog as good as Finn? He's our reminder that God is good. Reminder? Sure, because when life is hard, and at times it will be, and everything will seem wrong and nothing will make sense, 
we can look at Finn and remember that even when everything seems hopeless, God is good. Because he gave us Finn. Even when I thought I'd never find a home. Yes, because he gave us Finn. (laughs) Dog stories always make me cry. But this had a happy ending, Katie. I know! (laughs) Well... Let's bring Sabra up here, and she'll tell us a story that will dry our tears and make us laugh. Let's hear about Curly's Big Adventure. Now, most of us who are pet owners have lost a pet or two in our lives. Usually, our dog or cat gets out of the house unexpectedly and disappears for a few hours, overnight, or even a couple of days. We are overcome with worry and fear that Snowflake or Fluffy will be okay and not get hurt or or completely lost forever. But have you ever lost a tortoise? (laughs) I am not talking about a small reptile about the size of a toy car. I'm talking about a tortoise bigger than a throw pillow. This is the story of Curly, the African spurred tortoise who we lost. Now, the African spur tortoise is the third largest species of tortoise in the world, and he is native to uh, the area bordering the southern Sahara Desert, used to hot and dry temperatures and climate. Being a desert tortoise, we did not even keep any water in the containers in his pen. Curly lived in a kitty swimming pool with wood shavings, a heat lamp, and all the veggies and fruit that he would eat. We built an outdoor playpen for him that was eight by eight, and he could move in around the yard to different locations, but we also wanted Curly to be able to have a bit of walkabout, too. So we'd let him wander around outside the playpen once in a while. One afternoon, I decided to take a sun bath in the yard and, you know, let Curly have his walkabout. I grabbed my book, my lawn chair, and Curly, and we went outside in the front yard. I'd occasionally look up from my book to see where Curly was and move him back towards me if he needed to be. Well, the next time I looked up, Curly was gone. I didn't see him. I looked around and around in an ever-widening circle to try to find him. The problem with a runaway tortoise is you can't call his name and expect him to come back. (laughs) I thought, he's a tortoise. How fast could he possibly move? Well, it turns out he can move fast enough to disappear. After searching for five to ten minutes, I went in to tell my husband, Daryl, that Curly was missing. How in the world did you manage to lose (laughs) Curly? Well, we both went back out to search. We lived on some acreage with a cleared area that was about two acres, and then the property was surrounded by ferns, pine, and cherry trees. There was a tree line between our home and our neighbor's. We searched in front of the house, behind the house, in the ferns, which were actually about 18 to 24 inches tall, under the trees, everywhere. We searched for hours, but we could not find Curly. It started to get dark, and we still could not find him. Even a tortoise mom worries about her kid being lost in the woods (laughs) at night, all by himself. We had to call off the search until the next day. We told our neighbors, all of whom lived within a quarter of a mile from our house, to be on the lookout for Curly. The next morning dawned, a little cooler than usual, but we resumed the search. 
We called on our friends to help, and still, no luck. The next day was Monday, so we had to go back to work. I left some lettuce and watermelon out for him. Is that all? I thought you were going to slice a piece of cheesecake for him, too. I just might do that if he's not home by tomorrow. Well, we hit a cool and wet spell for the next couple of days while we continued searching after work. I was so worried about Curly. He was an African reptile. How could he survive these colder temperatures and wet days? I put his kiddie pool on the front porch, thinking he wouldn't be back. We resigned ourselves to having lost Curly forever. We continued to search off and on over the next two weeks. Nothing. Until one day, Daryl called me. Guess what? Curly's home. What? How? Where? Well, I came home from work, and Curly's pool was laying down on the front porch, not propped up like we had it. I went to prop it back up, and there he was. Daryl got a call from Bill and Sherry, our neighbors two doors down the road. Bill's brother Larry, who lived right next to him, found Curly in his garden, munching on his asparagus that he had just planted. I told him, you need to come over and see the size of this turtle in my garden. I think he's a snapper. Oh, you better be careful with it then. They'll go after your little dog. Yeah, that's what I'm worried about. I'm going to take this guy down to the river and put him back where he belongs. But come check him out before I do. Oh, no, Larry, you can't do that. I know that tortoise. That's curly. You're on a first-name basis with a tortoise? Well, I've only met him once or twice, but yeah, it's Saber and Daryl's missing tortoise. So that's for real. So when they came by the other night looking in the bushes and talking about a missing turtle, uh, I thought they might have been, you know... Glug, glug, glug. <laughs> Curly is for real. They've had him since he was really tiny. Help me load him up and I'll drive him over to their house and put him in the kiddie pool. That's his home after all. We were happy to have Curly back safe and sound. I think he was happy too. After that, he never got to wander around. I always like to think that Curly took a two-week cross-country vacation I wonder who he might have met along the way. But that is an adventure for another day. Turtle stories always make me cry. (laughs) Haiti. (laughs) Well, we can't wait to hear about Curly's adventure. Maybe we'll hear that story a little bit later on in this year. Up next, we have got a very special guest tonight. Please help me welcome Cody Storm from the Washington County Humane Society. Cody, you are now the director of the, uh, of the Humane Society. For those of us who don't know much about what it is that you all do there, kind of give us a, a snapshot of the work that you do on a day-to-day basis. Uh, absolutely. Um, well, our, our core mission is about saving animals. So even though our title says Washington County Humane Society, we pretty much extend all the way to Southwest Virginia, Western North Carolina, pretty much wherever there's a need. Uh, We specialize in saving animals, fostering, and then adopting. We also offer a low-cost spay and neuter voucher for people that are in need of getting their animals fixed at a reasonable cost. Um, We offer a pet food pantry, 
and we also partner with Meals on Wheels. But ultimately, it's about saving the animals. So, Cody, if if you are interested in the, um, especially to get some help with feeding your pet, who do they contact? What what number do they reach? Um, they can contact us directly on our website, uh, hswctn.org, or they can call at any time, uh, 423-926-8533. That's our office number. And uh, our business hours are Tuesday through Friday, 10 to 5, but we check the voicemail consistently throughout the weekend, off hours. So that way, if there's someone who is in need, we're able to help them. You talk about serving this whole region and not just Washington County. I happened to be there on a day where you went and rescued a whole litter of puppies from somewhere in Virginia. Tell us a little bit about that. We did. So like a lot of the animals that we get, it's it's just, a, you know, it's a sad story. Either they're abandoned, uh, you know, possibly the mother might have passed. In this case, there was five puppies that were abandoned in uh, Virginia about an hour and 10 minutes away from us. Um, we got a call and we, we have the resources, we're able to do it. So we sent out someone who to go and collect them and they've been in our facility now for uh, about a week and they're happy and healthy and they should be up for adoption here in just a little bit. And they were so cute. I, they, they were just so cute and so sweet. And then I had seen another litter of puppies that you had and lots of little kittens and you talk about having the resources to be able to go and get them where do those resources come from and and are you looking for more do you need more help oh my gosh we we always need help and by resources either me or my three other and four other employees <laughs> so our foundation is really our volunteers um it's having people that are able to come in and you know have a passion for animals like we do um and again, we're always looking for donations. We're looking for help. We're looking for people just to spend time with the animals. You know, we have dogs on property that need to be walked on a regular basis. So again, you can go to our website. You can fill out a volunteer application or give me a call at the office. You know, we always have uh, a need for people to come and help us out. So you're looking for kitten cuddlers and, and puppy walkers, and they are just so cute. And so if, if you are, are you also looking for people to help with uh, fostering them until they're ready to go to a home? Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, we have a huge need for fostering our animals. You know, at any given time, you know, we can have a need for 20 kittens, you know, 20 puppies, and we need to have homes for these animals. That's just, it, it's just an ideal situation to have these animals in a loving, caring home where they can be nurtured, taken care of, and loved, you know, as opposed to, you know, elsewhere. So, yes, absolutely. Fostering is a huge need for it. And, and what does fostering look like? What kind of a time commitment does that usually entail? Um, I would say typically, um, we'll say two to four weeks. On average, you know, most of the animals that we have, you know, there's a pretty quick turnaround on them. But, you know, again, it's it's not every situation is going to be ideal. You know, we do have some animals that just have not found that forever home yet. So they do need to have, you know, to be in a foster situation. But typically, I'd say, you know, two to four weeks. So if you're if you're interested in adopting or interested in just taking care of some some furry babies until they're ready for their forever home, you can contact the Humane Society. How many animals do you have there right now today? Um, right now, we're I think we have about 23 right now on site. 
So a lot of need. So if you're out there and you want to be a kitten cuddler, I went there and I, I kept telling myself, you've already got three at home. Don't bring home another. <laughs> they were so cute. But if you want to help out in any way, whether it's financially or to, or to go and just walk some of the puppies and spend time with them, you know, they, until they find their forever home, they need a little bit of love. And the little bit of love that you give could mean the difference between them having a happy life and a not so happy life. Absolutely. Absolutely. Contact me directly. Okay, that's Cody Storm. Thank you, Cody, so much for joining us tonight. Thank you. And we're so grateful, so grateful for the work that Cody does. Well, you know, we have had some dog stories tonight and some tortoise stories tonight. I think it is time for some cat stories. Now, I've never heard of vacuuming a cat until Mr. Manning mentioned it. Manning was the train master at the train station. Now, the train station wasn't too far from our farm, and living in the country, everybody knew everybody, which is why Mr. Manning was visiting Daddy one day. Is that a Siamese cat? Yes, sir, Mr. Manning. Do you vacuum that cat? No, sir, Mr. Manning. Now, Judy, you go right down to the station and ask Mrs. Manning to show you how to vacuum a cat. She vacuums her Siamese right often. Keeps the shedding down. Yes, sir, Mr. Manning. And that's exactly what I did. I ran all the way to the train station. Like all good train masters, Mr. and Mrs. Manning lived in an apartment above the station. And with not too much to do other than eating Cokes and peanuts at the five and dime and waiting for vultures in the dirt fields, <laughs> my sister and I often found ourselves playing at the, at the train station. So I knew my way there quite well. Well, of course. Come on in, Judy. I'll go in and get the vacuum cleaner. Mrs. Manning picked up her cat and sat on her bed. That's where she liked to be vacuumed. As soon as that cat saw Mrs. Manning attach that duster to the attachment to the vacuum, she laid down, she stretched out, and she purred. Mrs. Manning ran that duster all over that cat, and she loved every minute of it, rolling around, getting good and vacuumed. I couldn't wait to vacuum Bambi. The duster attachment I grabbed as fast as I could. I ran home and grabbed Bambi. I shut the bedroom door and... Bambi! That's when I learned... Bambi did not like to be vacuumed. I haven't tried to vacuum a cat since then, although my daughter has a Siamese, and the other day, I did ask her. Oh, gosh, Judy. I don't know about vacuuming a cat. I have got three cats at home, and they are not friends of the vacuum cleaner whenever Brett pulls it out to do the housework. Well... My cats always run when I pull out my banjo out of the closet. Now next, we're going to move to something quite a bit more delicate. We've got a story from Jonesboro resident Virginia Kennedy. Many people know about her gorgeous garden, which is usually a stop on the annual Garden Gala tour. But did you know that Virginia also raises butterflies that grace her beautiful garden? How do you raise a butterfly? Well, she shared that with us. Getting started with raising butterflies came from reading a little book from the Jonesboro Library sometime in the late 70s called Wings in the Meadow. 
It talked about the life cycle of the monarch butterfly and how easy they were to find and rear in captivity. It's hard to imagine now that you could find milkweed that the monarch caterpillars feed on growing around in town, but hey, I walk a lot and there are plenty of places that you could find milkweed just walking around town. I learned to look for the caterpillars and raise the first ones in a great big peanut butter jar. You have to have the right food plant for the larva or for the caterpillar. In this case, it was just common roadside milkweed that has the big pods. The jar would have to be covered with net to keep the caterpillars from escaping. They go through five stages in their development. I didn't know when I first learned to recognize what a monarch egg looked like, because well, they're very small, but once you see one, then you learn to recognize them very quickly. They usually laid on the underside of the leaf, tiny. They're oval and cream-colored, and if you look at them with a magnifying glass, they have these little stripes on them. I guess I first recognized the caterpillars, and they are striped black and white and yellow quite distinctive, and they have little filaments on the front end and the back end that look like little feelers that help them find their way around and detect the odor of the plants. The amazing thing is that, well, you know the female butterfly recognizes a milkweed plant, and that's the only thing butterfly caterpillars eat. The female monarch has the olfactory sense to recognize the correct plant to lay her eggs on. So anyway, I bring the caterpillars in on a leaf and keep them in the jar. They go through their five stages, what you call instars, I-N-S-T-A-R, instars. And each time they grow, they get too big for their skin, because insects have their skeleton on the outside, and even on a caterpillar, it's very soft. They only grow so much, and then their skin gets too tight for them, and this initiates the change. It gets quiet for a while, and it grows a new skin on the inside, and then splits out of the old one. So it's a good, it's a, a very good thing that, that human beings don't grow that way. So anyway, I watch my caterpillars every day. I have a real relationship with them. I have to be sure that they have something to eat and to keep them cleaned out, because they produce a lot of frass. F-R-A-S-S. -S. If you want to be really technical about caterpillar poop, it's frass. So you have to keep them clean to keep them from getting sick, because they can get sick too. When the caterpillar reaches its last stage, it's then ready to undergo metamorphosis, which is a transformation into still another form. The caterpillar will stop eating and it'll begin to wander around looking for a place to pupate, to become a pupa or a chrysalis. Inside the caterpillar body are cells that will become butterfly parts in the future, but these cells are dormant until the proper time comes. It is interesting to think that something that small has such an intricate process. It begins to look dull and almost lifeless, but a whole lot is going on in the inside as this transformation takes place. Then one day, the skin of the old caterpillar splits open and this beautiful green chrysalis bursts forth. It looks like a lump of jade and it has little bits of gold coloring, like it's been touched with gilt paint. The chrysalis will hang like that, seemingly lifeless, for a couple of weeks until the butterfly emerges. I find myself sitting and waiting to see one hatch out. 
It's just such a beautiful thing to watch. A miracle, really, hatching in my peanut butter char. Miracles, you know, they can show up in the most unlikely places. See if you can find one, even if you're not looking. Butterfly stories always make me smile. Yes. Thank you to Virginia Kennedy for sharing her story about raising butterflies. We know you give them a beautiful home with your garden where they can thrive. Hey, Jules, you know what caterpillars make me think of? Um, butterflies. Yeah, that and, you know, caterpillars, centipedes, snakes. Yikes. Up next, we've got a story from Linda Poland all about her snake. This story took place about 11 years ago, but it seems so appropriate for Jules' adventure this evening. And here it goes. Boy, she was hot when I found her and quite dehydrated. If I had not gone out to water, Matilda probably would have died, and I would hate that because she had been around for a long time. She must have gotten greedy and eaten too much because she was stuck in the nook of a tree in our gardens. Did I mention that Matilda is about five foot four and dark eyes? Dark beady eyes. She's been around our house for years and is like part of the family and she is one of the best varmint catchers there ever was. Matilda is a pilot black snake, or as they call them here in the mountains, just a plain old black snake and she's completely harmless to humans. The reason I know it's the same snake is because she carries a really bad scar right behind her head. Someone most likely tried to do her in with a shovel, not realizing that black snakes are good to have around if you live out in the country and have lots of varmints coming out of the woods like we do. Let's go back to Matilda's predicament of being stuck in the tree. She had two large lumps showing in her long, black, thin body where she had feasted on two of whatever they might have been. <laughs> I tried lifting her up with her tail, but she was too stuck and not happy at all with me. We had always been friends, but not real close friends. <laughs> she was getting quite irritated with me and really thrashing around so much that she was wearing herself out. I was afraid she would hurt herself, so I sprayed her down with the garden hose to cool her off. It really slowed her down. I went back to trying to free her from her predicament, but she was swinging her head around back towards me. I retrieved a metal chair from the porch and I held it up like a lion tamer between her and me. So if she swung around and accidentally bit me, this would block it. I have read that they don't bite unless they are defending themselves. And I'm sure she thought I was getting a little bit too personal in her business. She was worn out and so was I. So I lightly sprayed her down again and I sat down to think. It was a long shot, but it just might work. I ran into the kitchen and got some dish soap to put on her body, hoping I could lube her up enough to help the release process. 
I squeezed a bunch all over the crook in the tree and down her sides. While I was waiting for the soap to ooze between her and the tree bark, I moved the chair behind the tree and stood up on it, figuring that I had the extra height, it would give me a little bit more leverage and make it easier to pull her straight up and out. I took a deep breath, grabbed Matilda by the tail, and jerked up with all the might I had. She squirted out of that tree like a hot dog out of a bun <laughs> with a trail of shiny bubbles in the air right after her. She landed on the ground with a thud, and she didn't move. And I thought, oh my God, I've killed her. She wasn't moving, and I knew I had to get that soap off of her, but I didn't want to make her more lethargic with the ice-cold water out of the hose. So I put her in a metal wash tub that was right there and ran back to the kitchen and filled up a five-gallon jug with tepid water. I flipped the wash tub over and flipped her into it. Still lots and lots of bubbles. I was rubbing her body down, including the two big lumps of whatever it was that she had gotten in trouble because of in the first place, when suddenly she came to life and seemed to be walking on her tail. She was up, out, and over the side of that tub and racing through the grass for the woods. Then she stopped, and she turned around and looked back at me as if she knew I'd only been trying to help her. But you know what she did? She stuck her tongue at me and just took off. <laughs> Linda, thank you so much for that wonderful story. And it, it makes me sympathetic. And thank you for bringing the point of view, maybe a little bit of, of the snake. So uh -huh. thank you for that. Yep. And now... <laughs> The moment we've all been waiting for. I can't wait to introduce our next guest. I bet you can't. Now, Jules, please don't get rattled. <sighs> it's my sincere pleasure to introduce Connie Deegan, known to many as Connie the Snake Lady. <laughs> she has the coolest job title, herpetologist and nature educator. She teaches and inspires school children about the great outdoors and also speaks to community groups. Connie was just awarded Conservation Educator of the Year by the Tennessee Wildlife Federation. Congrats, Connie. She's here tonight. She's here tonight to share with us some stories about her work and especially about her little friends. And I'm going to let Jules come up nice and close to get to know Connie and her buddies up. a little better. Come on up, Connie. It is so great to have you on the show. And if you did not see the Johnson City Press this morning, she's on the front cover. So congratulations, Connie. That's really amazing. So um, thanks so much for coming out tonight. So I just want to ask you a couple of questions. For people like me who may not have spent a lot of time with snakes like Linda has, um, what can you tell us about the snakes here in East Tennessee? What kind of snakes can you find and, and how, should, how should we really react to them when we see them? Um, that's a great question. We have in Northeast Tennessee where we live, we have 23 different species of snakes. Wow. And I know everybody always wants to know about the venomous snakes. So of the 23 species, only two of them are venomous. 
So the two venomous species are copperhead and timber rattlesnake, but there's less of them. Like there might be one rattlesnake for every 500 garter snakes. So there exists, they're real, they're here, but there's not many. And they're like very specific habitats. And how can you tell the difference between a venomous snake and a non-venomous snake? If you see one in your yard, what, what are some things to help you back off and go, okay, I don't have to grab that shovel like Matilda's assailant used. So what should we look for? All right, that's a great question. Um, I would say take everything you've ever heard about identifying a venomous snake and throw it out the window. Okay. Because it's, it's for losers. Okay. <laughs> well, what do we want to do if we want to be a winner? <laughs> well, what I suggest is, so the old-fashioned ways are elliptical pupils, like a cat's eye in bright sunlight, or the shape of the head, or the scales on the belly. And that's just ridiculous, because how close to a snake do you have to get to see all that stuff? I'm not getting that close. <laughs> Connie did not come here with cages, so I'm feeling like I'm a little bit off the hook. So I'm much more relaxed now. So, so what are some things that we should look for, or do we need to look for something? Is there, should we be afraid, you know, when we see it, or, you know, what can make me, what can make me, <laughs> us, feel more at ease if we see one? Because I have seen some in my yard. What I would suggest is, if you see a snake and you don't know what it is, then stand there and check it out or maybe take a picture and just leave it alone. I got an email today from a friend and uh, he said, look at this beauty I saw today when I was hiking. And it was a photograph of a yellow-faced timber rattlesnake that he saw. And wow. that's what I'm talking about. Just because an animal is what it is doesn't give us a right to really kill it. We like to dislike certain critters, let's face it. Um, we don't like spiders, we don't like most bugs, we don't like sharks, we don't like bats, we don't like snakes. And I got news for you guys, it is all connected and everything is here for a reason. And there's so much, um, snakes offer so much to the natural world that if you remove them, we would be, believe it or not, in some trouble. So if you see a snake and you don't know what it is, just observe it and consider yourself lucky. But don't, don't mess with it if you don't want to. I've heard some snakes are territorial. Is there any truth to that? Every once in a while, I'll have someone tell me, well, when I was a little kid, I was outside and this snake chased me. <laughs> and it didn't. <laughs> it didn't happen. What most likely happened is that kid happened to get between the snake and where the snake was, knew where its hiding place was. So it said, I'm taking the risk. I'm going to go right between that kid's legs and try to get into that stone wall. So snakes don't chase people. They're not territorial. They just want to get away from you. We are giant compared to them. They would assume, I would assume, that they would assume that if I picked them up, I was going to eat them. You know, so they're just trying to protect themselves like any animal would. Now, one time, um, Brett and I, well, we go hiking a lot, but this one time we were going to Marguerite Falls, and on the way back, a, a really long snake, I'm not exaggerating, it was a really long uh, snake, went across the trail. It's like it had this whole nature preserve, and the trail was only this wide, and it got across it. And... And I didn't quite know what to do. <laughs> I mean, it's got, it's got everywhere. It's got, if you've been to Marguerite Falls, you know that place is like huge. And the walking trail is like, like this narrow. And that's where it wanted to be. So when it gets across your walking trail and you don't want to wait an hour while it's sunning itself, 
is there anything that you can do? Because I, I know I'm not going to go here, sneaky, 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 like I would for a cat or a dog or something like that. Um, if I saw a snake on a trail, as a matter of fact, I am not making this up. I was doing some work in one of the parks in Johnson City this morning, and I saw a black rat snake going right across the trail. And I put down my stuff, and I caught it. Because that's what I do. I just, I just, I've been catching them since I was a little kid. So I caught it, took its picture, and said, don't ever, ever get close to a human being again. <laughs> but let's say I was with a bunch of kids, and I had to get from here to the trailhead, or back to the parking lot, and there was a trail, and it was a venomous snake. Normally, you just don't mess with venomous snakes because you could be asking for trouble, but they are so docile, it's not funny. But if I had to, if, if there were a venomous snake and he was like, well, I'm not moving, and I'm like, well, I got to get there, <laughs> I would take a very, very, very long stick, and I would gently poke, 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 and the stick would be so long so that the snake could never, I would not be within his striking zone, and I'd kind of nudge him on his way. And then I would go on. That was my problem. I have been living in East Tennessee for a few years now, and I don't have a good poking stick. So I think the answer is make sure you have a poking stick if you're going into the woods. Or, or you find one handy at least, you know, poke it and see what it does, right? I always have a stick. You always have a stick. Okay. I always have a stick. So from somebody who deals with snakes all the time, she's always got a poking stick. So... I just need to find myself a good poking stick. You're talking about the, the black rat snake. How big do those get? Well, the black rat snake of our non-venomous species is the biggest snake that we have. And I caught one, and they, and they run up and down the East Coast. And when I lived in Rhode Island, I caught a black rat that was seven and a half feet. And um, wow. a couple of years ago, I caught one that was six feet, and I was with this guy, and I didn't know him well. And he was with his young daughter, and we were looking at some trails in the park, um, and uh, I asked him, I, and this was a very mellow snake, very mellow snake. So I knew it wasn't going to bolt as soon as I put it down. And I asked him if, <laughs> if he would take my picture. So I put the snake down, and it hung out, and I laid down right next to it. And he took the picture because finally, instead of holding a snake all balled up and saying, honest, it was a six-foot snake, now you could clearly see that that was a six-foot snake because I'm about six feet tall. Wow. Um, I don't know what I would do if I saw a snake that could play basketball. <laughs> I, something that big, you know, laid out one thing. But, I mean, Linda talked about the, the snake, like, popping up like that. Have you ever seen a snake kind of pop up? Not really. Snakes have excellent eyesight, but, you know, without little snaky legs, they're very low to the ground. So occasionally, in order to be able to see better, they'll kind of they'll lift, stand up in lift the up. third of their body. Yeah. And they'll be looking around. So you, you talked about the black snake and a couple of others. Do you have any favorite snakes? Do, do, you, have, do you have any snakes that are kind of your favorites? I do. I do. Uh, what are they? Let me see. Just a minute. What? Oh, it's her backpack. She's probably got a picture. <laughs> oh, you are so wrong. You are so not off the hook. <gasps> wow. I've seen people put snakes in uh, <laughs> pillowcases before when they when they catch that my palms are sweating. <laughs> I'll walk you through it. It'll be really good. Okay. It'll be a piece of cake. Okay. Um, well, tell me about the one in the blue sack then. All right. You got, you got blue and then you got stripey. So. Yes. So I happen to own three snakes and um, I use them a lot in talks and for educational reasons. And this one here 
is my most chill snake. She's also 21 years old this year. 21, and I've had her, I got her about seven days after she came out of a shell. And I purchased her because it's illegal to go and take any animal out of the woods because they need to be in the woods so they can have dates so they can make more. So you hear that, don't take an animal out of the woods. Don't ever, don't ever. You have the best intentions and often it doesn't work out well. So I have corn snakes, I have bred my corn snakes. Um, These are egg layers. And this particular snake has probably had about 150 little baby snakes. Where do you put them when they have their babies? Well, she'll hang out, and after they breed, it only takes about 30 days to lay the clutch. Uh And then it takes about two and a half months before the little guys to hatch out. That's what takes a while. So I take the eggs out, and I put them in a chicken, chicken egg incubator and keep the temp up to like 84 and wait. And then after a hundred of them hatch, where do they go? Oh, I have a very high quality pet store that I deal with and I sell them to the pet store. Okay. Okay. Yes. So, so you do, you, you're not like a crazy cat lady with a no, hundred. No. no. I, with a hundred snakes. You know, oh my gosh. I had this weird vision of Cruella DeVille with, you know, instead of all these puppies around her, she's got all these snakes around her. So you just have three. How many did you bring tonight? I brought two. I brought two. And it's unfortunate because this snake is probably one of the, I'm very interested in native species, things that we might find here. So I'm not really interested in pythons and boas because I don't live in South America or Africa. But because this snake has a little bit of orange in it, Mm -hmm. it just gets whacked in half all the time. And you know, you guys, I get photographs sent to me every day. I found a copperhead in my flower pot. There's a copperhead next to the swing set. There's a water moccasin in my pond. And they never, ever, ever, with one exception, in eight years, have they been a venomous snake, ever. And every time somebody knows what I do, they come up to me and they start telling me about a story. And I said, do you have a picture? And they'll take it out. And I'm like, well, that's a northern brown water snake. That's not a water moccasin. Oh, I didn't know that. So so they're here, but there's just not a love. I, I can't stress that enough. It's, it's not, it's highly unlikely any snake you see is going to be venomous. Okay. Here. So I'm, I'm going to, okay. I'm going to pretend that the snake is like my cat. Like really, would we pet our cats and dogs if they didn't have fur? I was just thinking about that. So let's just pretend like peekaboo had to get shaved because something happened. Uh, all right. So tell me what I'm supposed to do, because I don't want to hurt it, and I don't want to hurt me. All right, well, and, and I'll, I'll be right here, but what I would do is I would put my two hands out, and I'm going to place her in your hands, and then what she's going to do, very good, awesome, awesome, is she right now is checking us all out. She's smelling with her tongue. She's trying to get some clues with her sight, and she's trying to figure out where the heck she can go to hide. You're doing great. You're doing great. So... That's all she's trying to do. And after a while, she'll probably decide, man, I don't want to hang out here anymore. Oh, yeah, I'll go over there. I know how she feels. (laughs) Are you good? I'm good. (laughs) Okay, I got to say, it's not... I'm sweating. I held a snake. Oh, my gosh, y'all, I held a snake. You did good. (sighs) You want to hold the other one? Let me take a look at it first. (laughs) But I think I'm getting a little braver. How do you tell the girl snakes from the boy snakes? Uh, 
<laughs> well, you know, they're not like birds in that the males are often more colorful than the females or the females are larger than the males or you really have to know your snakes very, very well. Okay. I mean, okay. I, I can explain. Long story, very short. Everything in snake land happens oh. almost at the end of her body. Breeding, pooping, mating, and you have to go in there with a special little tool, which is like a straightened out paper clip. And depending upon how much you poke, you got a boy or a girl. So you got to wow. know what you're doing, but it's also very easy to learn. Okay, I'm going to, can I touch her, but maybe yes, not hold her may. yet? Okay. Yes, you may. I don't know if you can tell the difference, but this one is a lot bigger than the one that I held. She is a corn snake. She's actually one of the most beautiful corn snakes I've ever seen. She just has a lot of color. Wow. Sometimes they say it looks like Indian corn, and that's another reason for her name. And I don't mean to make it confusing, but a snake like a corn snake lives from New Jersey down to Florida, out to Oklahoma. So there's going to be color variations in such a large geographic area. And rattlesnakes have the exact same pattern, but they also have different color phases. But if you knew the pattern, you'd immediately recognize it as a rattlesnake. They got a brown, a black, and a yellow phase. So it can be complicated. But, you know, if snakes aren't your thing, just don't kill them. What I want to know is you're, you're very, very comfortable with it. When did you first really start to love snakes and realize that you had this affinity for snakes? You know, I think it was the, really the first time I saw a snake. I was a little kid and I was always outside and I was always trying to catch stuff. And when you're a little, little kid, you're not good enough yet. So I was bringing home like snails and worms and things like that, roly-polies, because I could catch those. And I graduated up to like toads, occasional frog. And then one day I was looking for toads in the backyard and I saw a snake. There were two snakes under a rock and I caught one. And that was it. I, I'm not a fanatic. I'm not a nut. I try to be really um, background about my appreciation for snakes and, and how much I value them. But I've, these are the guys that I've always caught my attention. I think they're beneficial. They are. They're beautiful. They're diverse. Um, they have found a niche that they utilize that a whole lot of other animals don't. I mean, the shape of them allows them to do so many different things that other critters just can't do. I just think they're really cool. And I realized I could have fallen in love with like much more typical things. And um, it's been these guys, you know, it's kind of worked well. Just thinking about that. It's today. you know I I can understand that when I was younger um, and I lived a few places in Texas and my major occupation until I was probably five or six years old was uh, catching lizards and um, keeping back when coffee came in cans big yeah. cans I always had a coffee can under my arm and I was catching lizards and I would put grass in there and I'd make want to make them happy and then of course let them out at the end of the day because I don't think my mom wanted them in the house but the lizards didn't freak my mom out and I think it's because they had legs I love lizards when I was in college I had a big iguana for a pet for a while and it was house trained and everything it, nice. it was really smart but I, I, I think I, I'm probably not alone I, I think it's a fact that they are you were talking about they've got this niche they are so different and they don't I felt something and I got scared for a second <laughs> They don't have legs. They don't. They don't like walk upright like us. And I, and I, I think that might be part of the, the freak out because the way they move, you know, it's yeah. that might be. But I, I am now no longer like t terrified. 
It's a learned behavior. Yeah. Because I used to do programs for much younger children. I don't often deal with young children any longer. And you could take a snake and you could take a bunny and you'd all be sitting in a circle and they wanted to touch the snake just as much as the bunny. It's a learned behavior. And that's what we got to watch as big people on the planet. We got to stop that because, you know, that's why every little girl likes pink because you're a girl, you like pink. Okay. Or everybody gets to hate snakes or everybody thinks spiders are creepy. And, And what you just said is, I think a lot of people would agree with you. So what we do is when we have a critter that that is liminal, that doesn't fit what's normal, um, instead of going, that's so cool, we go, that's creepy. Right. We need to like look at it another way. We need we need less of that, and not just when it comes to snakes, but anything that's a little bit different than what we are used to. Embrace it and love on it a little bit. And I I have. I have a real new appreciation, and I think I'm going to touch it one more time because it's not so bad, and it really is a beautiful creature. Creatures great and small, even those that have once terrified us. Thank you, Connie, for making me a little bit less afraid, and thanks for coming out tonight. Thank you so much. And thank you all for watching. And thank and and you know what? I was going to be sarcastic, but. I, I'm really serious here. Thank you all for donating who, um, who made this possible because now I feel like I've been educated and I hope you feel like you've learned a little bit more too, but I feel like I do. I have a new appreciation and just holding it and, and it's, it's not what I thought. And so take that along with any of the other fears that you might have. And like Connie said, think about it a little differently and say, oh, how cool, instead of, oh, how weird or how gross. So <sighs> I've done it. So thank you, even though if, even if you did it to be mean, Brett. <laughs> Brett was the first one to donate when I said. <laughs> and I think Sabra was second. But I do want to thank you for the experience. It was really amazing. And, and so thank you also to our sponsors. And that looks like all the time we have on our show tonight. We'd really like to say thanks to our sponsors for allowing tonight to happen with Connie the Snake Lady. Yes, and we'd also like to thank the Tennessee Arts Commission, the Wild Women of Jonesboro, Gary and Sandy Degner, and Heather McCluskey for their support of this program. Be sure to tune in to us the last Wednesday of the month on WETS. 89.5 FM in Johnson City, Tennessee. Or listen to us anytime on our podcast channel, Storytown, that's all one word, uh, on Apple Podcasts or really wherever you'd listen to podcasts, Spotify, iHeart. Like us, subscribe us, leave a review. We want to hear from you. Thanks for joining us tonight. And if you've got any suggestions for some stories that you want, just get in touch with us. We're here for you, and these are your stories too. Thanks so much, and good night. Good night.